So as a church, we are at the halfway point now of a series entitled called Steadfast. Steadfast. And uh, last time we looked at the book of James, and we looked at James chapter 2 in the first 13 verses, we made the point that... um, One of the dangers churches can get into when they're growing and becoming more diverse is that we get into a negative type of externalism. Do you remember that? We looked at the point that we can look at the external elements of people and judge them positively or negatively. And there was a resounding amen in our hearts as we joined with James in saying, that's just not good. You know, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And there's a, a real strength of agreement with that. Thank you for your emails and, and encouragements. But what James does now, in classic James style, in the very next verse, in verse 14, in the space of a heartbeat, he guards against a potential misunderstanding of what we looked at last week. What he does is, you see, he addresses the issue that I might humbly say is actually massive in the context in which we live in this nation, which is we as Christians can say, absolutely, James, we should never judge, we should never judge by externals. We should never do that. But we can then take it too far and actually say, my faith is so internal, so private, so just about me and God, that there is absolutely no place ever in any way, shape, or form for judging anything external. Any expressions of my life are just between me and God. And so even if there's absolutely no external sign of life at all, we have no biblical right in any way for worrying about that. You see, we can be those that take the, we shouldn't look on the external point to an extreme. And that's what he guards against here. He makes the point, and then this week, he gives us, might I say, a good type of external checking of ourselves. That is typical James. If you know James, it's like, oh, but so good. Because God loves us enough to pierce us at times, convict us, but also then to lovingly help us back to our feet after his work has penetrated us and done its work in us. And so we read together from verse 14. Now, He's going to help us not to make the classic mistake that many churches do in this nation, which is say, you know, you should never in any way be looking for anything external. That's, that's, that's a kind of legalism, you know, if there's any expectations on Christians to actually do anything. He says, well, just be careful. Look with me in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? You see, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and, and one of you says to them, go in peace, Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even The demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed 
God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. A friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Now this passage is one of the most controversial passages in the entire of the New Testament. But if correctly understood, I think it's one of the most beautiful, life-giving, healthy, reality-check-bringing scriptures in the whole Bible. And what he does is, he first of all, he describes, I think in devastatingly accurate ways, what he calls dead faith. But then, gloriously, he gives us not one, but two stunning examples of living, vibrant faith. And what he's doing is he's helping Christians to understand this idea of having faith is not a simple or a, it's not, you can't be clumsy in how you understand faith. There's a delicacy to it. There's a sophistication almost. There's a right maturity you have to understand faith is not just something that you can slip into autopilot with. First of all, we allow the word here to, to paint a picture of what he calls dead faith. He says that here in verses 14 to 20, okay? So prepare yourself, buckle up, a little bit of pain coming for some of us perhaps, maybe all of us. What he's saying here, right at the beginning, he says, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, when he says works, it's not a negative thing. It's, it's an outward expression. Actions, behavior that are in line with the internal apparent reality, yeah? So works is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Someone who says they have works or has faith but there's no works, can that type of faith saving him? That's the question. What he's saying here is you can have a superficial spirituality. You can in some way pay lip service to being a Christian. And actually, he's saying that type of faith, it won't save you. It won't save you. It's not real is what he's saying. And what he does is he gives us some little kind of, I think at least three observations of what this kind of dead faith is like. And what I just need to just say by way of context, which I think is helpful for us. He's writing to Jewish Christians. Judaism had become, wrongly, a kind of very legalistic thing. God gave the law, which was good, and then added to the law were hundreds of man-made laws. And Jews had, had got more and more and more weighed down by these man-made laws that were not good. Now, when the gospel came to these guys, the gospel, in essence, is this, God saves you by grace. Hallelujah. 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 Hello. It's, it's good. God's good. And they'd received that and gone, hallelujah, law. No, I don't have to. Uh, grace. But this is the negative. It's that they had, they had wrongly understood the grace of God and it led them, it seems, it's why he's addressing it, it seems, into kind of an abusive liberty. Yeah? I literally don't have to do anything ever now. Yeah? And th there's no expectations of me of any kind. And he seems to be saying, well, if the life of God is really in you, something really should be expressing itself. Yeah? It's what he's saying here. And this is really big for us, guys, because the country in which we live... So many people will look at the Bible, or not even look at the Bible, they'll look at, 
if we bring any sense of, now I've been saved by grace, how do I live? Any sense of encouragements to good spiritual disciplines or just a basic framework of how I can grow as a Christian. Many people say, that's legalism. That's legalism, yeah? Whereas actually what he's saying is, do you know what? You have to not be naive. That to grow in faith requires you giving yourself to kind of healthy warfare against your own sinfulness and saying, God, because, as it says in Titus, the grace of God teaches me to say no. It has effects. It changes me. And what he's saying is, guys, you, you, you've misunderstood that. And you're thinking that there really is no expectations on you. Uh, have a look at the three sort of definitions of this dead faith that he describes. First of all, he says here right at the beginning, it involves empty confession. An empty confession. They say they have faith. I say I'm a Christian, but there is absolutely no expression. There's no works. There's no outward manifestation. Jesus says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Do you know over 70 people, sorry, 70% of people in this nation would say they're Christian. They would say, yeah, they put on their census. I believe in the Christian faith. And this is tragic. This is terrifying. Because what it's saying is, it's saying, if, if, you, if you say that, but there is no expression, there's no works, then, then that kind of faith is, is not going to actually in any way be real. What are works? What are the works that he's talking about? Well, he's already given us a whole list of them, hasn't he? <laughs> if you've been taking note, he's already said, for example, endurance under trials. That's right at the beginning. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trials. That's, that's a work. That's God working in you. That's a sign the faith is real. Yeah, the fact that you're, if you're a Christian here today and life's been tough, the fact that you're here today and you're as best you can putting yourself in that place before God, that is an amazing thing. You might feel very weak, but that steadfastness under trial, that's a beautiful thing. It's a work. It's a sign of God. But if you just buckle, if you're always someone who the slightest pressure's come and you're not around, and that's a worrying thing. It is worrying, is what this says. Or, or for example, we've looked at the work of not blaming God when trials come. Do you remember that one? Right in chapter one, not blaming God. Are you someone who very quickly blames God and you're the victim and he's just bad? That's another a worrying sign. You see, faith that's real, it doesn't do that. Works, the works he's describing are someone who's able by the grace of God to say, Lord, I, I'm tempted to blame you, but actually I'm not going to. He's given us so many works. He's going to talk about prayer. He's going to talk about taming the tongue and not being negative about others. He's going to talk about humility. This book, just from cover to cover, is all about the works that say your faith is real. So he says, if you have faith, but there's no, if you say you have faith, there's, there's a nervousness, he says, you should have. There is. If there's no passion for God, ever. If you never find yourself telling other people. I, I was chatting to a, a non-Christian recently, and, and then he, we found out that um, a Christian from here works with this person in church, in work rather. And this guy's worked with this guy for years, and he said, oh, is that guy a Christian? Did he go to your church? And I just felt sick. I was just like, you don't know? After years of working together, you have, you've, he, that's never come up. He's never, he's never demonstrated a, 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 a supernatural ability to listen or to offer 
financial help or to be the most generous guy in the office and bless them with birthday presents because he loves them in the way God loves them or, or to in any way share the gospel or invite them. And I just felt that thinking, oh. And yet at the same time, I could hear my, my cultural voice saying, Tom, you know, we have a private faith. And yet I think James would say, actually, there should be something that comes out of us. Empty confessions, just an intensely only private faith, I think can be worrying. And sometimes I think what James is saying, just double check it's real. Just double check it's real. If there's, if there's no work, empty confession, he says, is, is a scary thing. In Acts chapter 19, when the gospel comes to Ephesus, what's the first thing that the guys who are into sorcery do? They burn their books. They burn them. They don't have to be told to do it. They want to do it. There's a work. It just happens, yeah? It's just a spontaneous thing. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, let your internal faith shine before men. No, no, no. He says, let your good works. There's stuff that comes out. Even if you're an introvert or an extrovert, the Bible repeatedly says that empty confession is a worrying thing. He then, he then kind of carries on with the scary diagnosis with what we could call false compassion. You see it here in verse 15 and 16. You know, when you see real need, you just kind of go, oh, that's a shame. It's a shame, isn't it? But if it never leaves us and leads us into a place of actually, see, mercy is not just feeling something, it's doing something. You know, it actually expresses itself in a real tangible way, which is why as a church, we, we give ourselves to a multitude of different mercy ministries because we profoundly believe that real fruit is the sign of a real heart that's been changed. It's not that we think we should do it, we want to do it. But when there's, when there's just false compassion and, and we just make excuses and, oh, I would do something, but, you know, scary, man. Matthew 25, it's in the Bible where Jesus says, before the throne, you know, the sheep and the goats. And what's his definition of the difference? One fed the poor, one clothed the naked, one went to the prisons and the others didn't. And I find that terrifying. It's not saying those things made them a Christian, but it expressed something of the reality of a compassionate God in their hearts. So James won't let us off the hook. You know, going to South Africa, it's just shocking. I mean, many of you will know, you've been to countries where, I remember just in Joburg recently, one of the Christians who's an amazingly godly guy, he just said to me, yeah, 30 people die every day just on the roads in Johannesburg alone. 30 people a day. And most of them are, are very poor black people who live in the townships and they stand in the middle of, of the intersections, three or four lane highways, trying to sell you a mobile phone cover as you slow down. It's terrifying. Many of them only have one leg because of illness or one arm. And they're standing there facing this wave of oncoming traffic trying to sell it. And I was just undone. I was thinking, man, this is, this is horrific. God, you, I could be that person. But talking to the guys there, they just get desensitized. And I know I would. And God says, please, please be careful. Just because needs are great, it doesn't mean that you can therefore become desensitized. We, he says that. He says, come on, real faith means there should be something in all of us that till the day we die, even if it's just in our own small way, in our own locality, we do stuff that demonstrates a real faith. And he's saying to them, guys, he says, dead faith means that there's a, a lack of, of sincere, 
compassion that expresses itself in action. And then he also, notice here, thirdly, just when you're feeling convicted enough, he then says this in verse 18, he says, show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He says this, you believe that God is one. He's saying, you would say, yeah, I believe Jesus is God. And he says, you do well. And he's being sarcastic, all right? You don't do well, is what he's saying. Big wow. Who cares? Words are cheap, is what James is saying, Tom. You say God is one. You do well, not. And then he says these devastating words, even the demons believe. And this is real. Christians believe in a reality that there is an enemy, Satan, the devil, and he has fallen angels who do his bidding. And this is the shocking truth, is the Bible tells us the Satan and, and, and demons, they actually have a very accurate theology. They know who God is. They have a kind of faith. They have a kind of belief. But it's a dead faith. It's not a faith that leads to repentance. It doesn't lead to anything. Apart from, look at this, the demons believe and they shudder. What he's saying is, at least it produces something in them. He's actually saying dead faith is inferior to demon faith. This type of faith, where we just pay lip service, service and it produces nothing, at least with demons, it produces in them a sense of one day I know I will face him. And when God looks at a Christian nation like the UK, 70% who say, yeah, I can't believe in Jesus, and there is no fear of God. There is no, there's nothing that happens, you know? Demons believe and they shudder at least, whereas this type of faith, it's, it's under that, he's saying. It's not even on a par with the demon's response is appropriate. They shudder with terror at the thought of facing a holy God. So you read this and you think, wow, James is, maybe it's just me. I read this and it, and it convicts me. It, it hits me. And I think it, it, it just terrifyingly describes maybe the nation in which we live, I think. Christian nation. And maybe even some of us in this room, we would say, oh, I'm a Christian. And I just want to, I mean, I'll say this with real humility and I'll tell you, myself, allowing the word just to test me. This is God's word. It's perfect. It's hard hitting, but it's perfect. And he's just saying, just take your pulse spiritually. Dead faith will not save. Dead faith is, is, is no faith. Think about what, how does, Lord, is the, what are the works in my life? What is the fruit? What are the things that allow me to have the assurance that I'm actually a Christian? I know this is hard, but this is God's kindness to us, guys. It's God's kindness. A good father or mother doesn't just sugarcoat life. This is real. This is real. It's what the Bible says. Coming to church, but nothing else, that, that isn't a necessary demonstration of real faith. So he first of all says here, guys, please, lovingly, don't be naive. Where is the fruit? 
and he describes dead faith. But then what he does, thank goodness, he then describes not one but two amazing, inspiring descriptions of living faith. Faith that's vibrant. Faith that is inspiring. And the first he gives us is Abraham. Do you see that? He says here, he says, was not Abraham our father? You see, he's writing to Jews. And so they, their father racially was Abraham. Physically, he was their great-grandfather. But wonderfully, Abraham is also our spiritual father of every Christian. He's like our role model. He's like the, the, the first massive glorious hero of the Bible. And so he demonstrates and he embodies living faith. And what's that faith like? Is what it says. What was, what was, why was Abraham's faith so real? Why was it living in contrast to what we've just seen? It's because when you look at his life, it was filled with works. It was filled with action, with behaviors that demonstrated an internal reality of knowing God. That's what he's getting at here. Abraham was an amazing guy. Do you know God first revealed himself to him and his wife when he was about 70, 80, something like that? Yeah? So that's amazing. God comes and he says to him, I'm going to give you and your wife a child. Imagine the God, God speaking to, you know, the queen and Prince Philip. You're going to become a mum and dad, all right? We're so serious with the Bible. It's crazy town. It's like you. It's like, what? God says, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a child. And that child, he's going to be the beginnings of an entire, not just a big family, a nation. And so for year after year, Abraham waits, he waits, he waits. And eventually they have this miraculous son called Isaac. And 10, 15 years in, you think, wow, that was a stunning act of faith. right? He believed God. It was a work. It was an external thing. But God's just kind of warming up, all right? This is just like, he's just, you know, getting ready to really show what living faith is like. Because then, you read this, this moment where God, with apparently a straight face, he just says to Abraham with his child, it's a complete miracle. Then they're pushing 100. He's like, and his, this one child is the, is the hope of the nation that's going to ch- change the world. And he says, yeah, I, I, I'm going to, um, I want you to take your son to Mount Moriah and I want you to offer him up as a burnt offering. Thanks. Now, is it just me? What? God speaking to a man and a woman to say, that child you've waited for all those, that child, I want you to go and kill that child. That's in the Bible. I kind of wish it wasn't in a way, because it's confusing at one level. You think, this is, what would do, if God said that, I don't even want to go there, but God speaks to them, and unbelievably, this is the stunning thing. It just says, God speaks to him, and he just says, the next day he got up early. That's faith. That's living faith. Not the fact that he got up early, by the way. He's like, wow, got to get up early. No, that he got up, there was no questioning, there was no God, this is crazy. Can you explain yourself? The purity of faith in the man. Come on. Living, vibrant, supernatural, God-given faith. It's not that he was impressive. It's that God in him was impressive. It's breathtaking. He got up and he took his son and two other guys and they go to the mountain. When they get there, it's amazing. He then leaves the other two guys and he says another expression of faith. He says, he says you wait here. We, we're going to go and worship and we will return. 
We will return? What? This guy is, he, he, this is correct. God's calling me to, to kill my son, but I, I just know he's going to do something. He's going to do something. And so we see this amazing story. And I've called this, uh, you know, living faith described Hollywood style Because it's just like something out of Hollywood. It's just crazy. Isn't it? It's, it's bonkers. It's, it, but he does it. It's amazing. This a guy over 100 with his son going up to, to kill him because God said to do this. And then it says he bound Isaac. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? Do you think Isaac just like, no problem? Maybe. Maybe there was a bit of a discussion. Dad, what are you doing? Where is the animal? Where is, what's, am I getting a little bit nervous now? He bound Isaac. And he places him on. He builds the altar. He places him on. And then it says his knife was raised. He got to that point. And then it says the angel of the Lord said, enough, enough, enough. You see, God always knew. He always knew Abraham's heart. But this work, he wanted, he wanted the world to see it. He wanted the world to know about it. He wanted it to be told at City Church many thousands of years later. To inspire us, this, this is living faith. And just so you know, a lamb, or a ram rather, was provided, and that was sacrificed instead. John MacArthur, he, an amazing commenter, he speculates, I wonder if there was almost a glimmer of disappointment in the heart of Abraham, because he was so fueled and ready that God was going to raise his son. He just, and he's, he, he believes, I don't know if he's right or not, that he, he may have even been thinking, oh, I just know God's going to do this first resurrection in the Bible. That's what the, that's what the New Testament tells us. He was a man who knew that God could even raise the dead. That's where his faith come from. And so you see this stunning story. And what it, what it tells us, in Genesis 15, it tells us that before Abraham even did this, it says that he was, God counted his faith as righteousness. What that means is he became vertically right before God, just before God. He hadn't done that thing I just described. He was given righteousness as a gift. But though when we come on here, in verse 21, where it says, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works? What you need to understand is he's not talking about vertical justification. He's talking about horizontal expression of that which he's already received. You can be justified in the legal sense. And as Christians, we believe you only become right with God through a gift of faith. But when it says he was justified by his works, what it means is he was proved before the world. His faith was real. It doesn't mean justified in a legal sense. It means that which he'd already received, the gift of righteousness. You see, when you receive the gift of righteousness, you show your righteousness. Yeah? When you receive the gift, when you know, like Abraham, that you've received this gift of righteousness, you manifest righteousness. This was the moment. Genesis 15, it says he was declared righteous by a gift of faith. Genesis 22, this occurs. And this is the moment that God wanted to be told throughout the world that it's not him getting right with God. It's him justifying, showing, declaring, demonstrating his reality of his gift of righteousness before God for the whole world. So we could look at this and go, we don't have to just try and think, was Abraham right before God? We can see it. So you see this and you read this and if you're anything like me, you think that is absolutely stunning. And just notice this amazing phrase where he says he was called a friend of God. When I used to read that, I used to think that's great, isn't it? Because as Christians, we're all friends of God. I'm not so sure. I might be wrong. 
to have a little dialogue. John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Brilliant. But in verse 14 before it, he says, I call you friends if you do what I command you. I'd always kind of glossed over that bit. He said, it's like he's saying, there's this extraordinary, amazing, particular, almost title that Abraham received at that moment. You see, never in the book of Genesis is he called a friend of God. No, no, no. It's only much later. 2 Chronicles 20 and then Isaiah 41. It, looking back, it says, God says, he, he was my friend. And it's like God always loved him and he always loved God. But there was this moment, this extraordinary moment where because of what he did, because of that work that was just extraordinary, God said, you, you've kind of entered into a bit of a special place in my heart. Wouldn't you want that over your life? You, I, I mean, I want a church that's growing and vibrant and big and inclusive, but I also want a church where it could be said, when you meet your maker, there was an unusually high amount of people at City Church who had followed in the slipstream of Abraham, who weren't just Christians, but they were real friends of God. They really knew him. They'd followed him in every work that he called them to, to go for even mind-blowingly human-level difficult ones, but that, that man, that woman. You see, with my dad, I've always been his son because him and my mum got together many years ago and I was born and I was his son. And it's a wonderful thing. I'm his, I'm his son, he's my dad. In the last 10 years, I would say I've become his friend. As he's walked through cancer, it's actually been, I think, Tom, his friend. Not just his son, although that's amazing. I think there is something that God wants us to, to believe for. I wanna, I, when I, and this gives us a vision of old age, actually. Dignity. That as you get older in your life and God calls you to, to follow him in obedience, maybe it can be written over you. He or she was a true, one of those special few who was a real friend of God. Really knew me. Don't you want that? Wouldn't that be Amazing. A real friend of God. And what he does then uh, to finish, which is so wonderful, he then gives us another example with which we finish, which is incredibly hope bringing. Because if you're anything like me, you hear that about Abraham, and it is amazing, but you kind of go, <laughs> I would never do that. I would fail at the first hurdle. I would not be like, yes, I will go. And then he talks about this lady called Rahab. It's amazing. It's the, it's the humor of God in this story. You could not get two, at a human level, more different people right next to each other. And we're going to go, yes, of course, Rahab. She was a prostitute. She was a, a lady of the night, we might say in East Kent. She was a prostitute. And in Joshua 2, there's this amazing moment where Jericho is a city and the Israelites are getting ready to invade it. They send two spies in. And unbelievably, one of the ladies who actually is part of the inhabitants of the city, she lets them in because she's heard about this God, the Israelite God. She's called Rahab. And when the king says to her, hey, have you got those spies hiding? She says, no, 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 no. They don't know where they've gone. She lies. But basically, she risks her life to protect them. And then when, sometime later, 
Israel invades, they spare her. And the Bible says, look at these words with me. Look at them in verse 25. You've heard about the Hollywood style, Abraham, extraordinary faith, probably the most amazing act of faith in the whole of the Bible, I might humbly say, apart from the stuff Jesus did, of course. Verse 25, look at this. And in the same way, a prostitute, a prostitute, Isn't this amazing? She was justified by God by her work. So you can't sit there and go, wow, wasn't Abraham amazing? And disqualify the rest of the preach. No, no, no. He lifts us up and says, do not discount yourself. You might have been a Christian five days or 50 years. You might be young or old or rich or poor. You see, Abraham was a good man. He was an amazing leader. He was a man. And all these contrasts. And it brings hope to us. And this is the reality. Do you know what? Even Abraham, this is an amazing moment, but Abraham had to grow in faith. You look back in the early days of Abraham, he wasn't impressive. He got loads wrong. He lied about his wife. He slept with his maidservant. This is the pinnacle of his life where he's getting it right. But Romans chapter four says about Abraham, he grew, he grew, he grew strong in faith. Do you understand that? He started weak in faith and he grew. Hallelujah. We can grow. We can grow. We can be like him is what it's saying. And I find this so encouraging. He grew in faith. He made blunders, but he he kept going. He was steadfast. He understood. I love what 2 Peter says. It says, make every effort to add to your faith, to supplement to your faith. So you've got faith, right? Yeah. Add to it. It says, what? Make every effort. That sounds a bit like legalism, Tom. No, it isn't. It's called growing and maturing as a Christian so your faith gets stronger. Make every effort to add to your faith. What? Virtue. Boop. There it goes. Knowledge. There it goes. Self-control. Bosh. In it goes. Steadfastness. There we are. In it goes. It goes on and on and on. Love for God. Brotherly affection. Add it in, he's saying. And then he says, because if you see these elements in your life and they are increasing, your faith will not be in vain. That's what it says. Isn't that amazing? It's saying that actually there is a vision for your life, which means if you keep going, if you keep saying, Lord, grow my faith, whether you're a Rahab or whether an Abraham, gloriously, he's saying living faith, living faith. You see, for some of you, the issue is, is, you know, is there a reality to my faith at all, which we've already said. But for many of you, it's not an issue of whether it's about your vitality of your faith. Your faith has just gone a bit cold. It's gone a bit, you know, static. And God's saying, look at these amazing examples. It was about stepping out. It was about actually prophesying, not talking about prophesying. It was actually about praying, not talking about praying. It was about giving, not talking about giving. It was about stepping out with mission, not talking about mission. Yeah, it was, it's gloriously releasing. You can grow in faith. Abraham grew in faith and he was in the Bible and we sit in awe. He partnered with God. His faith was made active, is what it says, through his works. So I want to say this, and I want to really say this. Some of you think any kind of works, any kind of self-discipline is a legalism, and you're naive. It isn't. It is God's gift to you to grow. That's how Abraham grew in the faith. And, it, and the means of grace that God gives us. I love what John Pope, for example, prayer. He says this about prayer. He says, is it true that intentional, regular, disciplined prayer is a duty? Is it a discipline, really? You can call it that in the way that it's a duty for a scuba diver to put on their air tank before he goes underwater. 
It's a duty the way that pilots listen to air traffic controllers. It's a duty in the way that soldiers in combat clean their rifles and load their guns. It's a duty the way hungry people eat food and thirsty people drink water. He's saying, if you don't do the things you're designed to do, you will be malnourished and you will stay weak in faith. But with a fatherly love, he says, I don't want you to stay there. Just as you eat, he says it's naive to be as intentional or to be as regular in your internet use or your regular physical workout or your eating and to completely neglect. The means of grace is this beautiful phrase. It's a means of grace. It's not a thing you should do. Yes, I should eat. But if I don't eat, I'll die. But it's a joyful thing to do. And so as you start to regularly pray, let's start with that. As you start to, just two minutes a day, whatever it is for you, just start. What happens is, this is the truth. Who you already are in Christ starts to become alive. It's not that you have to become someone. That's not the issue. It's who you already are. Because we have an enemy who doesn't want you to know who you are. And when you say, I will apply the basic means of, I will just start to pray five minutes a day. And Lord, you remind me as I do that, I'm already born of God and the evil one cannot hurt me. I'm in Christ. I have the same intimacy with the Father that Jesus does. Hallelujah. Your word says that I'm more than a conqueror. Your word says that I'm holy and blameless, not that I will be, that I am already, that I'm chosen before you. Your word tells me that I'm dead to sin, that sin isn't my boss anymore. I can actually overcome. Your word says to me that I'm more than a conqueror. Your word says to me that you're preparing a place for me. Your word says to me that I am now free from the law of sin and death. Your word says to me, Lord God, that you have made me a new creation. Your word says to me, and as we start to apply this, guess what? We grow in faith. Hallelujah! Do you know the potential in this room of a growing people who aren't just spiritual infants, but growing in God is mind-blowing. I really believe that. And this is what this is saying. For some, the works issue is a warning. Check your faith. And if you don't know Christ or you're just giving lip service, come today, freely receive the gift. Come and receive the gift like Abraham did because it results then in works. But for many here, it's not so much about works or a warning. It's, listen, works are a way into growing in God. Yeah? They're God's gift. And I deliberately included prayer because it starts and it ends with prayer. That's the big rock. Getting that in your life in the way that suits you. Some of you love to walk. Some of you love to sit in a room. Some of you love to pepper your day. Some of you love to do a big chunk. In the, whatever, it doesn't matter. Just do it. That's what it's saying. As you do, you grow in faith and you become intoxicated. Remembering the truth of who you already are. Do you know, knowing your identity in Christ is probably the most important thing in your whole life. Knowing who God has made you to be. Because when that fills your soul, Wow. Everything starts to change. Amen? Amen. Let's just be before our Lord for a moment. I just want to help us apply this a little bit. Lord, thank you that you're here. Thank you we've got a good few minutes now just to let your word wash over us. Lord, we could sing a song. We could break bread. But Lord, we just, more than everything, want to just give you a moment. Just to, just to, Continue your work in our hearts. Right now, Lord. 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 Lord, I want to thank you that for those here 
who feel nothing and honestly, they just think, oh, there's just no obvious expression of my faith yet. Lord, I want to pray for courage to ask the big question. Lord, am I definitely in Christ? I want to pray for that in this atmosphere of safety and love. I want to pray that there'll be a, just a, an ability to say, Lord, if, if I can't really think of any fruit, anything that actually would declare I'm your son, your daughter. I want to pray that when we bring this meeting to an end in a moment, that they'll find their way to one of our prayer team who will be on my right, your left, in green t-shirts. I want to pray for real, wonderful honesty and courage not to leave this room with it being uncertain. But Lord, today I pray also for the many here. Probably the majority are, Lord, and this is... It's just been one of those helpful, painful slightly, but helpful reminders that, Lord, if you could do that with Abraham, Sarah, if you could do that with them, if you could do that with Rahab, wow, what could you do with me? And I just believe in the stillness of this room right now, there's a bit of a holy moment for many, many, many here who you're, you're doing so well. Many of you are carrying so many things. And you've come here, and what you, God doesn't want you to carry away is a sense of, I should try harder. But what he is saying to you is, there's a wisdom moment for you right now. There's a wisdom moment. I just feel like almost now, just imagine your week ahead of you, the next seven precious days, assuming you're going to have them, if the Lord wills, just even now in your mind. Say, Spirit of God, Lord, are there any... Just practical things you want to just highlight. The way I drive to work. Lord, if you, I always pray on my own, but I struggle. Do I need to just seek someone out who I could maybe just grab a few minutes with? Maybe some of you it's about getting reconnected with a, a vibrant small group. Or maybe husbands and wives who haven't really prayed together for a long time. Just saying, Lord... This is your moment right now in the silence of this room. We, we love you. We just want to grow in faith like Abraham. Lord, I thank you. There is the potential for extraordinary works, good works. As it says in Ephesians, works that you've prepared. Even now, I believe there's many of you who just sensing just that beginnings of fresh faith in your heart right now. Yeah. It doesn't have to be complicated. For some of you, it's just about being honest with someone that you find praying really, really hard. And that's okay. Jesus didn't teach his disciples to preach, it seems. He did teach them to pray. Maybe it's because that's a lot harder. <laughs> Lord, I want to pray for just a real love of God across this room. For many who just sense, oh, Lord, Lord, I've just grown a little cold the whirlwind of my life. Right now, Lord, just give those steps, give those moments, give those, those practical expressions. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I want to pray right now just for, even as was prophesied earlier, just a fatherly embrace all across this room. Lord, a fatherly embrace. Father, we love you. We know that you challenge us to grow us.
Lord, thank you that you don't let us stay still, but you lovingly, Lord, lead us. I pray for living, living faith, defined by great works. I pray for it. I pray for this church that there'll be rumors. Did you hear? Did you hear about her? It was amazing. Did you, did you hear about what she did? She just said she just felt this surge of faith in God and she did this thing. And, or she said no to this thing that she's been struggling. It's amazing. I pray for that for this church, Lord. This beautiful church that you died for and you love and you intercede for. And you care far more about than I do. Lord, I pray, fill us with great faith, living faith for adventures in God afresh. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.